there are men who consider Mitch McConnell to be the original ultimate nullifier. There are men who consider Chris Christie to be the real ego the living planet. And then there's Doug Bost and Adam Bernstein. Two men who should have better things to do, but aren't doing them right now. These are two grown-ass men. Grown-ass men. With special guest grown-ass man, Chris Claremont. On this episode, we get to talk with a guy whose name was on the first page of some of the best comics we've ever read. He took a comic, The X-Men, that was literally doing four years of reprint issues. It was not a title anybody cared about. And he turned it into what's probably the most popular superhero team in comics and movies, and the best written. The stories that have come from his imagination are the movies and TV shows you love from the Wolverine and X-Men movies, including the best of those movies, Days of Future Past, to Netflix shows like Iron Fist. He's in the Will Eisner Award Hall of Fame. He's a novelist. And the thing that you learn talking with Chris Claremont is that he keeps an encyclopedic knowledge of all the characters and stories he's created, all of them, even with the twists and turns of writing X-Men comics for over 17 years. He could keep spinning those stories forever. Chris Claremont, you're on the phone with grown-ass men. Well, you have my deepest sympathy. I think, if I'm not mistaken, you didn't always want to write comic books. But when you were growing up, did you read comics at all? Did you? Uh, well, I did what every kid did my age, which was you read comics while waiting to get your hair cut at the barbershop because they had as they had a pile of magazines for grown-ups, they had a pile of uh, comics for kids. And so, that, you know, some DC, very few Marvel, a lot of Gold Key, and, and uh, you know, we're talking late 50s, early 60s comics. So this right. is, you know, pre-Stan in many respects. What I was actually hooked on as a young, as a young boy was uh, a, a weekly kids' comic newspaper from England called Eagle, hmm. uh, which was actually created by a Church of England minister uh, to tell stories, that heroic stories, uh, science fiction, fantasy, action adventure, with a, a, I guess you would say, a, a noble philosophic stance. Uh, so... Were they religious? Oh, God, well... They did biographies of of Jesus Christ and and Winston Churchill and Montgomery of Alamein, that sort of thing. Okay. But no, I mean the the primary it was an adventure it was adventure stuff. Right. And you, and you would have articles and short stories. Uh, you would have uh, World War Two action adventure. But the primary color stories were Dan Deere, Sky Pilot of the Spaceways, mm-hmm. uh, and Dan Deere was. Colonel Daniel Dare of <laughs> Space Command, which basically was the Royal Air Force in outer space, by uh, Frank Hampson. Uh, and it was absolutely epic brilliant. 
There were evil Venusians, enslaved Martians in the claws of a villain called the Mekon, who was great. Uh, but then you, you, it evolved to interstellar threats and, and starships and the whole nine yards. Um, so it was a 1950s, 1960 precursor to both Doctor Who and Star Trek, at least in my back brain. Just imagine, I guess the best analogy since I've just been reading his new stuff is a Berkeley breathed Sunday page every week. But high adventure, not satire. Right. And it was way cool. That was the stuff that I loved as a kid. And then I moved over to reading prose. And uh, on one hand, it was Mickey Spillane. On the other hand, it was Modesty Blaze with uh, Robert Heinlein and Arthur Clarke in the middle. (laughs) My way of dealing with life was in in Massapequa, New York, was I'd go to the bookmobile every Tuesday and get a copy of Jane's Fighting Ships because it was just the right size to stack up standard novels on top of it, and I'd basically walk home with a dozen books under my arm. Right. You know, and read them all and bring them back the next Tuesday and get another dozen. So you went to Bard, is that yeah. true? Mm-hmm. Did you know uh, the Steely Dan guys? They came through after uh, Woodstock, yeah, and the hog farm as well. Wow. (laughs) So how did you end up at Marvel? Uh, By accident. Students were expected to go out and get an an internship. And coming off of 1968, rolling into 69, uh, as a political theorist, there really wasn't a lot of openings, uh, especially if you're going to a leftist school that was number two on the DEA's hit parade. Yeah. But what a time to be doing that. What a time to be, like, studying that. It was cool. Yeah, it must have been. But uh, didn't have much going in political theory. There wasn't much going in terms of acting in New York in uh, January of, of 69. Right. Uh, so I figured I'd look in publishing, and uh, a, a good friend of my parents was Al Jaffe of Mad Magazine. Yeah. And I thought, hey, that'd be cool. I could work at Mad Magazine. I've been reading Mad for years, and it looks re- like a lot of fun. <laughs> and Al basically went to my parents and said, what the are you talking about? You're not going to let, I am not, no way am I going to introduce your son to my boss. Uh, you'll never speak to me again. <laughs> so he basically said, uh, "Do does he have any interest in Marvel Comics? And I said, yeah. That's kind of cool. Next thing I know, I get a call from Stan. Stan said, well, uh, you have to understand, we're a small company, and, uh, you know, we're we're not very successful. We can't pay anything. And I said, well, that's all right. This is uh, for college credit. I'm not supposed to ask for money. And he said, oh, you're hired. (laughs) (laughs) It's a philosophy that hasn't changed much over the last 50 years. Wow. (laughs) You started out answering fan mail, is that right? Now they call them interns, but then it was just, I uh, was a gopher. Right. You know, and you do whatever the name implies. You go for whatever you're told to. Part of the fun thing was between, when you weren't doing anything, you could read through the, the archives, which right. weren't that huge at the, in those days. But I was sitting and reading back issues of Sergeant Fury at the same time as I'm proofreading current issues of Sergeant Fury. 
And the issue that rolled in while I was there was Nick going back to Brooklyn to see his mom and his brother, who would later grow up to become Scorpio. Except I was reading Stan and Jack's early issues of Sergeant Fury at the same time, where the priest is testifying and saying, yes, Sergeant Nick Fury is a good man. He was an orphan in Brooklyn. <laughs> That's right. And I said, oops. And I went into Roy Thomas, who was the in-house sort of editor at the time. Stan was boss. You knew that because he had the only office with a door. Right. Um, everyone else had just cubicles. And I said to, to Roy, we have a problem here. Uh, you know, we have this current issue where Nick goes home to visit his family, and yet we have this issue that Stan wrote uh, with Jack where he's established clearly as an orphan. Uh, what do we do? And Roy looks up at me and he says, call him. Call who? Call Stan. So I called Stan and told him, and Stan did what Stan always does, which is, okay, you found it, you fix it. <laughs> Hung up. Did he give you a no prize for discovering that? No. You, I was, I'm an employee, not a fan. <laughs> I found it, I fix it. And I turned to Roy and he said, what do you say? And I said, you found it, you fixed it. And Roy said, well, get to work. Well, how'd you fix it? He's adopted. It's nice. It's clean. Well, it also sets up Fury for Nick's own series as, as head of S.H.I.E.L.D. because that way it, it, there's no brother versus brother action with Scorpio. It then becomes brother versus stepbrother, which gives Fury a, a kind of a moral out, if you want it. Right. So, but that's, that's how the, the office worked in those days. One of the other seminal moments that happened at the time was the arrival in the office of the first pages that I got to proofread of, of X-Men with Roy and Neil. Right. So I got to look at Neil hitting his stride with what became my benchmark characters. Sure. Well, what he did on X-Men was amazing at the time. I mean, he, he took it from zero to 60. It, it, like the changes well, that... You would be amazed at the letters we got that were not happy. Oh. How dare you how dare you deprive Werner Roth of of his due as a, as a great Marvel artist etc cetera, etc cetera, you know uh, why do you why did you hire this guy Adams Jim Steranko was so much better uh -huh. Wow yeah and you have to remember this wasn't the case of simply typing something on the internet and pressing enter you actually had to write it on paper buy a stamp stick it in an envelope send it you know it took mm -hmm. effort fold up your rage into nearly, yeah. uh what was your relationship like with with Stan over the years so you started off like did that impress him that you were able to solve that thing or he didn't really care he just wanted you to solve it no I mean Stan's attitude was I mean it was a very simple you had to meet your deadlines you had to not be a pain in the ass and ideally do a good story and he'd settle for any two out of three <laughs> right you know like working for a newspaper you you had to, deadlines were very much a fact of life yeah what was the first book that you really got a chance to sink your teeth into that you were happy about well i guess the first i mean the first the first significant 
series out the gate I, I guess I ever got was Iron Fist. Right. Uh, you know, starting in uh, Marvel Presents. Premiere, yeah. Premiere, yeah, for a couple of issues and then into Iron Fist itself. Which was a lot of fun, not the least reason of which was the ability to work with John. Right, John is that Murray. where you guys met on that series? Well, I've been trying to get him. He penciled an entire annual-sized issue of FF on spec and was flashing it at uh, New York Comic Con. I think Roger Stern and I were both walking around trying to, you know, because he and Roger were, all, were buds, uh, trying to get editorial to pay attention. This, this guy is really good. We should hire him. Uh, and they finally did for Iron Fist, and that was just way cool. Because you could, all of the 15 issues he was on the book, you could just watch him get better from issue to issue. Yeah, totally. I mean, I actually just read in prep to talk with you again. I, I had read them all when they came out, but uh-huh. I read number one yesterday. <laughs> Which number one? Uh, Iron Fist 1. The two of you guys together, obviously, you know, later on in X-Men, it's, it's epic, but I love the Iron Fist stuff. It, it really, you know, it brought it to life, you know, and I loved Iron Fist because I loved all those kung fu things when I was young, you know. Well, yeah, I learned a lot of martial arts writing all that stuff. <laughs> I was thinking about the characters, the number of characters who you have created. It's phenomenal. I mean, there's when you look it up on Wikipedia, there's a whole section that's just characters created by Chris Claremont. I mean, it's well, you have to start with which ones have won Oscars. Yeah, yeah. And work your way down from there. Well, that's 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 a good way to to organize it. Well, but I, which ones have won Oscars? Which ones are knights? I, I mean, I loved the X Men books so much. One of the reasons that maybe it resonated so much with me and with with other people is that you were constantly bringing in new characters and new people. I mean, this is a small list, but the ones that stood out, Mystique, Emma Frost, Rogue, Kitty Pryde, Moira McTaggart, Jubilee, Psylocke, the Hellfire Club, the New Mutants, Captain Britain, Gambit, Sabretooth, Pyro, Proteus, we didn't even get to Arcade, I love Arcade, <laughs> uh, Cable, North Star, Mariko, Yoshida, and then there were so many characters who you brought to New Heights, you didn't create Wolverine, but you took him to a place that nobody else did, the Star Jammers, even Power Man and Iron Fist in the same way. Was that conscious, or did oh, you, yeah. was it something that you couldn't help? Well, both. The thing about writing X-Men was it was a unique experience that is pretty much unlikely to be repeated. I mean, Len, Len Wein and Dave Cockrum had crafted the new X-Men, so I had all these brand new characters about whom we knew nothing other than the, the brief establishing moments seen in Giant Size Number 1, and, and basically a vast canvas of uncharted territory. Um, you know, if you read the first issues 1 to 70 of Uncanny X-Men, of Stan, starting with Stan's, you realize fairly quickly that aside from Magneto, they have nothing in terms of an antagonist. Magneto is all you need in terms of an antagonist, really. But he was it. 
all of the rest of the guys they fought were less than stellar. Oh my goodness, they fought Frankenstein. It, it was bad. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, with the Sentinels and Magneto, you had, in a way, all the villains you had really needed. Uh, it's just a matter of making them far more interesting and far more credible, uh, which, you know, both Dave and John and I set out to do with, with uh, enthusiasm. Well, no other superhero book was so dedicated to expanding the character base. Well, I would suggest reading the first hundred issues of Stan and Jack on, on uh, Fantastic Four. Hardly an issue would go by without Jack throwing in two or three brand new people. Oh, look, Inhumans. Oh, look. Here, uh, Wyatt Wingfoot. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and then but not only Wyatt Wingfoot, but uh, an entire backstory involving the Chiwazi and, and, you know, giant monsters in the Southwest. And that was the marvel that, that hooked me when I was in high school. When I started to buy comics, like 1974, around then, I remember that the X-Men was all reprints. And yep. I, for some reason, when those reprint issues came out, that and, like, some other books, I was so not interested in it. Marvel's thought was, okay... We seem to have encouraged some sort of response. We'll guest star them in other books, which they did, and we'll keep it going as a reprint until we figure out what to do. It was a re so it was a reprint that was like 1970. So it was a reprint for about four years, and that was when Roy, uh, Stan, and Roy decided Marvel would try and redo it uh, with a new team. And the the decision was made to internationalize the team because Marvel had thoughts of selling to a more global market yeah. as well. But also because the X-Men had tried a number of times with the original five and it hadn't rocketed off the, the, the boards. So let's change the mix and see what happens. Right, but I was going to say that, just to relate to your story with FF, was that I, I, when it was all reprints, I just said I wasn't even interested. Uh -huh. and then I remember seeing Giant Size X-Men 1, but for some reason it just didn't penetrate my mind. And then I bought 94, 95, like right in the stationery store in Fort uh -huh. Lee, New Jersey. And I was like, this is awesome. You know, I was like 12, 13 max, you uh -huh. know. But I had that same feeling about it, and I bought, you know, religiously a lot of those X-Men issues. I couldn't wait for them to come out. It really, I, you know, there were some other good books at the time, but that really was a huge one. When we were getting ready for this show, I asked a couple of my friends, what should I ask Chris Claremont? <laughs> Uh, and we got a couple of uh, questions that came up a couple of times. Mm -hmm. One was about that run leading up to Dark Phoenix mm -hmm. with the Hellfire Club. Mm -hmm. And there's this fantastic, I mean, that was, you know, those are just great issues, one after another. Mm -hmm. And I think it's around issue 133. Wolverine starts killing people. 
Uh-huh. And it was a, it was, it, my, your mind was blown as a kid <laughs> reading these things that he's not like Batman. He's not gonna uh, take the nonviolent way if he can. He is, those claws are to kill. Now, and well, it's I, not like we hadn't set it up like four or five times before. For example, Teddy issues earlier, there's a scene where they've got to get through guards on the outer gate, and Nightcrawler and Storm and he are, sit, are there, and he just says, I'll handle it, and Lee goes, steps off panel, and all you see is their reaction. And it's like, holy cow. Yeah, right. And you're left to your own imagination as to what has happened to the, fo- the guys on the other side. But it's um, bad. Well, yeah, that was the key to, I guess, coalescing around him. In a way, the Hugh Jackman cameo in Apocalypse is supposed to echo that, that kind of moment, where he just goes slaughtering through uh, the guys, uh, Stryker's guys, um, as he's busting out of his, his jail cell. But I think the interesting thing about it is if you look at the apocalypse scene it's totally unreal where you know part of me is sitting there thinking no 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 this should be coppola slash peckinpah if he's gonna cut these 30 or 40 guys to shreds which he does it should make tarantino blush there should be blood like that should be the moment where you convey on a primal level this is how wolverine functions And it's not nice. And the interesting coda to the scenes in uh, the Hellfire story are that Shooter came down, Jim Shooter came down like a month later and said, we have to have a scene down the line. And Louis Simons and I are looking at him going, yeah, where we establish all the guys that he slashed in that scene are not dead. And we kind of said, oh, because we cannot have our hero slaughtering people like that. And I looked at Wheezy, and Wheezy looked at me, and I said, okay, we'll, we'll get around to it. I looked at, you know, he left. I looked at Wheezy, Wheezy looked at me, and we both shook our heads and said, no, we'll, we'll not get around to it because they're not alive. Totally. They're dead. That's why we bought those books. That was, again, what makes his relationship with Kitty so important over the course of the run. Yeah. So that in the, in, you know, A, you have Frank's and my miniseries, which defines him in a, about as primal a term as we can get. But then you have the Kitty Wolverine six-parter. And, it, you know, what we're basically establishing is that for all intents and purposes, Kitty is Logan's philosophical karmic daughter. Right. So that was that was the direction I wanted to. Uh, I had always been wanting to go with her in in the series. It was just you know figured I'd take about three hundred issues to get there. <laughs> but the other thing also, and this derives a lot from Archie Goodwin as editor in chief, is his point is. Every so often, you're going to have an issue that's just a total foobar. So you pick yourself up, 
dust yourself off and 30 days later you come back with something better. If you look at the stories that Stan did, that Roy did, that I like to think I did, everything is either a solo issue or a two-parter. You get in, you say your piece, you get out. Days of Future Past, a two-parter. It's too bad that you're not writing the Marvel Netflix stuff because it just goes on forever, those things, and it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about that on the show before, like that they just like they take a small idea and drag it out for ten episodes, and by the end you're like, I just I'm looking forward to this ending, you know. Oh, I don't. I have you have me at a disadvantage. I think a I can we can never find Netflix, and the only one I've seen so far is the pilot for Luke Cage, which I thought was quite good. It was, but it just didn't. It couldn't. It, they just didn't continue it with new ideas to they, keep it they've fresh. Started, I think they they all start well, and then especially Luke Cage. I thought like they just ran out of ideas. How really, can you run out really of ideas? I, I mean, the, the thing. Well, I, look who well, we're talking to. We're talking to somebody who does not run out of ideas. Well, no. I mean, it's just when Archie decided that the neither Iron Fist nor Luke Cage were selling particularly well. And since John was going to move over to uh, X-Men anyway, the ideal solution would be to combine Danny and Luke in one series, Luke Cage, Iron Fist. Neither title had a significant amount of good villains. You know, I was trying to figure out what the hell do I write about? And Archie, as I remember, you know, just looks at me as if he's talking to the village idiot, which at that point he was. And he said, come on, Chris. You got Luke Cage, Danny Rand, Misty Knight, Colleen Wing. If you can't come up with a year's worth of titles just derived from the four of them walking in the door in the morning and figuring out how to brew a cup of coffee... Right. You're not a writer. And I thought, oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> the best stories, the best directions for stories invariably have to come from character. Events are easy. It's how the people react to them, how the people interact with their, with their colleagues that happily defines the memorable moments for the reader. I want to ask you for a second about, uh, you created so many um, great women, female characters, and you give them more depth and more responsibility and positions of leadership in the, mm -hmm. the X-Men. But I have another question for you. Yes? What? What about what happened with Dazzler? Like, why did they force Dazzler down your throat? Like, what was going on? They didn't force it. Well, because it was Marvel cut a deal. It seemed like a brilliant idea at the time. Uh, I thought she was fun because originally she was black, and it would, I thought it'd be cool to have a um, a, a a more street sensitive black character in the team to kind of drive Storm crazy. Oh, wow. But then um, Bo Derek became the, the new face of Dazzler, and that's why she turned white. Um, yeah, it's 
every so often you do stuff because the editor chief comes in, editor in chief comes in and says, "Hey, dude, we want you to do stuff for the company." So we did. Yeah. Right. What are you working on now? Uh, what every writer does between gigs, I'm writing a novel. Not your first. You've written a number. Oh yeah. At the moment, it's it's oh, 57 pages of handwritten notes. So it's impossible to say. Really, I'm still scribbling. Right. The thing that I most valued and appreciated was getting letters from fans back in the day saying, "I read this scene and holy cow, I have had a moment like that. Mm. I have had friends who've had that conversation. I have been in that situation." Uh, because that's telling me I've done my job. I have, I have given these characters, these superhero characters, moments of reality that, that put them on the same real-world level as the people who are reading the book. Thank you so much for talking to us, Chris. Oh, the pleasure was mine. Yeah, really enjoyed it. We love your work for so long. So, okay, right. cool. Thanks. You're the best. Take care. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Big thanks to Chris Claremont for talking with us. And happy holidays, everybody. We'll be back in 2017. Grown-ass man.